So if you don't have notes, you need them. If you're new, trust me, you need them. Um, so there's people walking around. Uh, you'll want to have these. I've often told you, some people say, well, I don't fill in the blanks. Yeah, but you know when you get to lunch because you know where we are in the notes. So at least you want it for that. Um, so we're in a series on the book of Acts, and Pastor Kurt has preached from chapters 1, 2, and 3. And last week, Pastor Andy uh, went to, to 5. The nice thing about the book of Acts, when we're doing only, I think, 14 weeks or something like that on it, is uh, it makes it kind of like the Old Testament. There's no hope of covering the whole thing, um, and so we can cover what we want to. So we're going to go back, turn with, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to uh, go back to the fourth chapter. Um, and uh, by the way, we'll, we'll cover a lot of scripture this week and next week. I have the privilege next week of skipping forward to chapter 7 to preach from. Um, so bring your Bibles. We will cover a lot of scripture. Uh, some of you will say, wow, there's more scripture than preaching. Um, you uh, should remember Josiah's day when they read the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, word for word in Hebrew, from beginning to end in one service. So actually, we are Bible light this morning compared to the to Jews. Uh, Acts chapter 4, and let's start with the first verse. Settle in and listen to this great story. As they were speaking to the people, the apostles, and the priests, and the captain of the guard, and the Sadducees, Came upon them, and they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about be about five thousand. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, remember that name, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. So these were the, the sons of Aaron, specific, right? Levi was the big, all the priests, but the high priests came from Aaron's line, Moses' brother. And there they had placed them in the center. They began to inquire, by what power, in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, they'd healed a man. As to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before us here in good health. Verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, remember these were mostly fishermen, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men for, this is interesting, they were in a real quandary, for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. And <clears throat> when they had summoned them and commanded them, 
not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. See, this is an amazing passage, isn't it? Uh, Remember who Caiaphas was? He had gotten Jesus executed. This guy was not to be trifled with. And now the apostles were proclaiming the name of the very man who had just been crucified by these exact religious leaders. And this is, uh, what, eight weeks before? Something like that? But listen to their words. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So despite the Jewish leader's desire to shut down the new sect, the unmistakable miracle has tied their hands. Look at verse 21. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was 40 years old upon whom the miracle of healing had been performed. So now they go back to the other believers and they report what's happened. Remember, they've just spent a night in jail. And they began to pray. <clears throat> now, if you've ever heard me uh, teach before, I often, when I'm teaching, will say, this is what the Bible should say. You need to understand, I'm not rewriting scripture. I- I'm just saying this is what it should say. Um, here you go. Oh, Lord, we're facing opposition And we've been threatened for our faith, and they're taking away our First Amendment rights, and we're losing our religious liberties, and you need to get the right justices appointed to the Supreme Court so that we won't face persecution. Oh, Lord. So as they lifted their voices and prayed, that's not what they said. Look, I love how the NIV translates this, and it's it's your blanks. This is such an important verse. Look how this reads in the NIV, and fill in your blanks. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Imagine that. They got arrested, jailed, threatened, and then they went to prayer meeting, but they didn't pray for protection or religious liberty or governmental permission to exercise their constitutional rights. No, they prayed for boldness to speak the very word that they were being told not to speak. And despite all the risks, and despite the mandate of the authorities to stop speaking, their prayer gets answered. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And now their boldness even gets them in more trouble. Their prayers are answered, and now it gets them in a lot of trouble. In chapter 5, Pastor Andy preached from this section last week. They're arrested, they're imprisoned, they're tortured, they're flogged. And yet at that point, rather than complaining to God about the persecution, look what happened It's on the screen, look at this. And after calling the apostles, this from chapter five, the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released him, so they went on their way from the presence of the council 
rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. So feature this. They're flogged, and then they rejoice that they were found worthy to suffer. And then they boldly keep defying the powers that got their Messiah murdered. So where did this kind of boldness come from? How in the world did these, what else can you call them, ragtag nobodies, how did they get the kind of outrageous courage in the face of assured persecution and possible death? The answer comes in one of the verses that we just read in chapter 4. It's one of the foundational truths that's required for anyone who truly wants to follow Jesus with a resilient faith that can withstand anything. But it's really subtle. It's easy to blow right through it in the reading. But look back with me again at verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and, here it is, began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Besides Pentecost, this may be the most important phrase in the rest of the book of Acts. Having been with Jesus. By the way, you'd say, well, what about the conversion of Paul in the whole second half of the book? How was Paul made into Paul? He was confronted with Jesus, and then Jesus sent him to the wilderness for three, the desert, the Arabian desert, for three years to be with nobody else but with Jesus. See, it's easy to completely miss this point in this statement. This doesn't just mean they were acquainted with Jesus or that they hung around Jesus or that they were in close proximity to Jesus. Here's the meaning of verse 13. It's in your notes. Here's your blanks. They weren't just with Jesus. They hadn't just met Jesus. They actually, truly knew Jesus. So what is it that gave him such boldness? How could they face opposition and threats and hatred and persecution? Look at the four things they faced with the, these four responses, joy and courage and forgiveness and love. How could they face adversity and death with such calmness and confidence? What made them the kind of people who stood face to face with danger and rejoiced that they had the privilege of suffering for Jesus? The answer, there's only one. The answer is they really, actually, authentically, unmistakably knew Jesus. They didn't just show up for temple and say, wow, I'm a believer. It was real. Something has happened, though, through the ages in the church that has a, a contrast in often in the church since then compared to the early church. You see, the understanding of what it means to really know God has tended over the ages to be replaced by a great emphasis on theological orthodoxy and correct doctrine. Now, you shouldn't understand me. Not for one moment am I saying that doctrine and orthodoxy are unimportant. They're essential. And many of you have heard me teach often, and you know 
how important I believe and how committed I am to pursuing truth. But we need to guard against a big risk. Here's your next blanks. Here's the big risk. The purpose of good theology is to support a genuine, intimate relationship with God. But there is ever a tendency to replace the relationship with knowledge, doctrine, facts, and theology. Replace. That's the problem. Replace relationship with the stuff we do and the stuff we believe. The creed, my friends, isn't the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. A relationship with Jesus is salvation. So this morning, I'd like us to give, to look at a biblical illustration of just how important this concept is. And we'll do it by showing the difference between having information about God and actually knowing him. And we find, I love this dramatic difference in the book of Exodus, as you look at Pharaoh and Moses squaring off to each other. Has it, has it ever occurred to you that Pharaoh knew a whole lot about God? In fact, he knew some things in ways after the plagues. He knew some things in ways that we'll never know until we meet God in all of his glory and power. That's right. Think about all the objective knowledge about God's power and majesty Pharaoh had. Can you actually imagine seeing the plagues for real? I mean, this, we're not just talking Charlton Heston and Hollywood here. Can you imagine seeing them for real? And how about actually seeing the pillar of fire that kept Pharaoh's army away from the Israelites when they're trapped at the Red Sea? You see, there were things that Pharaoh knew about God that we can only have the vaguest notion of because while we've heard these stories, we didn't experience them like Pharaoh did. In fact, God makes this point repeatedly, this knowing about God and the intent for, him to, for us to really know God. Turn to Exodus Easy to find, second book in the Bible, all the way back just to the right of Genesis, chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, and here we pick up with the well-known, world-famous story of Pharaoh and Moses, right? Verse 1, chapter 7, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Skip down to verse 4, when Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Here's your blank, write it in. Why is Moses presenting himself to Pharaoh? The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water and station yourself and meet him on the bank of the Nile that you may take in your hand the staff that is turned into a serpent and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that we may serve him in the wilderness but behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff and with my hand, that it may be turned into blood. Here's your blank. By this you shall know, Pharaoh, 
Egyptians, unbelievers, lost people, you may know, shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he has removed the frogs. So now we're on the frogs plague. Remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me, When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs may destroy, uh, excuse me, may, may be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? And he said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, your God. Write it in. Why this plague? Why the frogs? That you may know that there is no one like our God. Verse 20. Are we picking up on a pattern? Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. As he comes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you will not let my people, behold, I will send a swarm of insects on you and your servants and on your people into the houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall a full swarm of insects and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. This is where people, the Hebrews were, where my people are living so that no swarm of insects will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of of the land. Fill in your blank. Why the plague of insects? That you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I'm not just in heaven. I'm not just a spirit. I'm everywhere. Great theology in God's purpose for the plagues. Chapter 9, verse 13. We're not even going to do all of them. This is the short list. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the uh, morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, some people would call Pharaoh a slow learner. Verse 14, for this time I will send all the plagues on you and your servants and your people that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Write it in. Why the plagues? so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. By the way, some people say, oh, what a mean God. No, the plagues were God's mercy. He should have just destroyed them. The plagues were saying, Pharaoh, it doesn't matter how powerful you are. My purpose will be established. It's with you or without you. Won't you join me? Wouldn't you like to know me? The plagues were God's it's an irony, it's an oxymoron, his merciful judgment. He's good enough to beat us about the head and face if that's what it takes for us to be saved. Now think about how much Pharaoh knew about God. In fact, you could easily put Pharaoh on a very short list among those who have most explicitly experienced the power of God in all of history. I mean, there's not very many others, right, who got to see it like Pharaoh did. But having established this, I want us to go back to the very beginning of the story when Pharaoh was confronted with the opportunity to join God in his salvation plan. Just turn quickly back to the beginning of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. This is at the beginning, remember? But Pharaoh said, Remember? 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let my people, let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Interesting. I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Now, I want you to notice Pharaoh's testimony at the beginning, right, in his interaction with the one true God, write it in. I do not know the Lord. Now, to be sure, think about it. Back at the beginning, he certainly could be excused for not knowing God. He'd never even heard of him before Moses talked to him about him. But here's an aspect of Pharaoh's proclamation about not knowing God that goes far beyond the idea of simply not being acquainted with him. By the end of the story, he was way more, wouldn't you say, way more than just acquainted with God. Holy cow, how much did he know about the majesty of God? He knew a whole bunch about God, and this leads to a key concept, your next blanks. Despite the fact that Pharaoh ended up knowing a whole lot about God, sorry about all the blanks, but I want you to get this. Despite the fact that Pharaoh ended up knowing a whole lot about God, he never allowed this knowledge to actually bring him to actually know God himself. See, Pharaoh knew a lot about God, but he didn't actually know him. And one of the tragedies of the modern church is that the very same thing can be true of people who have a huge amount of data about God. There's never been in history of the church more tools. You want to learn Hebrew? It's easy online. We've never had these kind of tools to know the Word of God like we have currently. But amazing, you know, some have spent a lifetime learning stuff about God, but it's never really changed them. Let me just drop a quick question on you. You're still struggling with and asking God to get rid of the same thing that you were struggling with 15 years ago? You may have learned a lot more about God since, but that's not the same as knowing really knowing him. You see, many people have never moved from just meeting him to actually knowing him. So here's our application. Here's the application. Write it in. I'll never really know God. I'll never really know God unless truly knowing him becomes my relentless pursuit and my greatest desire. See, in the application, we'll turn from Pharaoh to Moses and Moses to two other Old Testament figures, and we'll look at the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Now, you know, David was renowned for many things, but in the Psalms, he talked frequently of his greatest desire. Let's look at just two brief passages. I put them up here quickly for efficiency. Look at Psalm 27. Remember, this is the king. One thing... I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Write it in, look at these words, one thing I have asked that I shall seek, one real pursuit. And think about it, David was a king, so David could have anything he wanted. Imagine a man in his position boiling all of his desires down to 
that I may know the beauty of the Lord. And now look at Psalm 42, another one, famous. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I love the literal Hebrew here. It's really powerful in expressing David's deep yearning for God. It's so instructive, I want us to write it in. Here, write in the literal Hebrew from that phrase. As the deer longs for the water, so my soul longs for you. Let me ask, what do you, what do you really long for this morning? What desire really drives you? What desire overcomes you? You see, these passages give us a clear look at what really mattered to King David. Now, of course, anyone who really knows much about David also knows that uh, he really blew it at times. David was an adulterer and an accomplice to murder. So we're going to see the answer to the question of why, despite his sins and failures, which were big, Jesus is going to be willing to sit on David's throne when he returns at his second coming. Jesus will sit on David's throne, not Saul's. So we're going to see that there's something deep inside of David that was true even after he had sinned. And for us to see this, I want us to look at the response of King David and of King Saul after their sin was discovered and publicly announced. Each of them had that, you know. Um, So first let's look at King Saul. Uh, Saul. You can start turning to to 1 Samuel if you want to, which is to the right about four or five books, just about 20% of the way into your Bible. Um, The Amalekites had become so evil that their lives were forfeit before the Lord. And so God spoke to Saul through the prophet Samuel. He told him to destroy everything, including all the spoil. Nothing was to be kept by the Israelites. They weren't supposed to get any of the spoil. Um, So let's pick up after this great victory over the Amalekites, 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Look at verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Avilah as far as you go to Shur, which is in the east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Okay, and now we see Saul's sin and Samuel's response. Look at verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. Notice what they kept. The best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they got rid of the junk and kept the good stuff for themselves. When they were under orders by God, no, it's all, they are forfeit. Everything they have is forfeit because of their incredible... They worship the detestable god of Molech and they sacrifice their children to these false gods. Their lives are forfeit. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me, has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 12, and Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul and it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he, is up for, uh, he set up a monument for himself. Come back to that. A monument to himself then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. 
And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, I would have hated the prophets. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, listen, they have brought them from the Amalekites. And for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, getting very religious now, of course. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. This is amazing. Watch how it goes on. And and now watch his false repentance and the consequences. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Samuel said, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But, look what he says, the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So we now see what happens when you do false repentance. Look at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I notice he didn't stop there. Come back to that too. Now he's going to explain it. Because I feared the people to listen to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return me to me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And now that the gravity of his sin has become apparent, watch this. Verse 27. As Samuel went to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And now at this point, think about this. For Saul, everything is coming apart. He's gotten this He's losing everything. He's losing the kingdom. He's losing the power. He's losing his honor. And you know what? We now get an incredible glimpse into Saul's heart and mind. And we get to see what matters most to Saul. You ready for it? Everything's coming apart. Life's practically over. And look at verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. So as he's in the midst of losing his kingdom, look at what Saul begs for. Honor me. What mattered most to Saul? His honor, his reputation, his standing, his position, his kingship his stuff, 
his palace. So what do we learn about Saul? Here's your blank. What matters most to Saul is what people think of him. Now, I know I've never had that issue. Probably none of you have either. Aren't you glad we're not Saul? What mattered most to Saul was what people thought of him. And now let's look at King David as the prophet Nathan, right? We got the Samuel facing off with Saul. Now let's turn to the next book, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And let's look now at Nathan's face off with David. And if you know the story well, it's unbelievably sets up this perfect thing where David says, the man should die. By the way, be really careful when you ever pronounce judgment on somebody else. They might be telling your story. So this is amazing. So Nathan now comes back at David, exposing his sin. You ready for this? Verse 7 in Samuel, first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan then said to David, remember, this is in the courts, so this is public. All Israel is going to know what's going on. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it is also I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And, listen, to the prophets could not help it. They rubbed it in. Look at this. And if that had been too little, David, I would have given, added many more things to you like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So after this, you probably know well, Nathan announces the horrible four consequences of David's sin. And look at David's very simple response. No excuses. Here it is, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now, perhaps you know the biblical commentators, they, in this, these passages, they've taught for a long time that there are two major differences between Saul and David and why the God responded differently to them. Here's your differences. Write them in. Number one, David took responsibility for his sin while Saul blamed his sin on others. And difference number two, David's repentance was real, while Saul's repentance was a sham. Think about it. Uh, uh, the people made me do it. it. It wasn't really my fault. David, I've sinned. It's nobody else's fault. His repentance was real. Isn't it amazing? That, I mean, what was Saul's sin? He did a religious sacrifice a little early, and David is an adulterer and a murderer, and Jesus is going to sit on David's throne? Does that bother you? The depth of the sin does not matter. All that matters is do I have no excuses when I say, oh God, I rebelled and sinned against you. There is no, no matter what the content of that sin is, that sin will always be forgiven. And no matter how trivial the other sins are, if it's excused, it's not real repentance. And God can't forgive unrepented sin. But I believe there's a third difference. I don't really see this in the commentators. 
But I actually think this is the most important difference between Samuel, excuse me, Saul and David. Write it in. Difference number three, the defining difference. This is my opinion, but I think the text will now show you soon. The defining difference between David and Saul was found in what they couldn't live without. The defining difference was what they couldn't live without. And to show you how significant this defining difference was, I want us to turn, this is easy, right to the middle of your Bible. Psalm 51. It's almost in the middle of the Psalms. And here we're going to see what almost all of the biblical scholars who write on this believe is, was probably written by David, was, was almost for sure written by David, but was written almost for sure right after Nathan exposed his sin before the whole nation. Psalm 51, think of the context. He's just fallen. He's been told of the horrible consequences of his sin. And he said, I'm a sinner. And now all Israel knows. But he said, oh God, I'm a sinner. And look at this, Psalm 51. You'll know some of it well. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and I have done this evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Notice the content of David's true repentance. I have no claim. I'm just a sinner. Please wash me, O God. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And in these magnificent words of hope, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now I want you to recall Saul now. What couldn't Saul live without? Look again what mattered most to Saul. Write it in. Here's your blank. What did Saul beg for? Please honor me before the people. Life's coming apart. His sin is exposed. Please honor me before the people. What mattered most to Saul? What was it he couldn't live without? His honor, his reputation, his standing, his position. Remember that? And in the end, what mattered most to Saul was what people thought of him. But what was David's most desperate cry when you boiled everything in life down to its very core? When David was stripped of everything, what was his one heart cry? Just seven words. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, David's great fear in life wasn't that he'd lose the kingship or the palace or the riches or the power or the possessions or the position or the wealth. 
listens to his other words in that sentence, cast me not away from your presence. It's what matters most. You can hear this. The one thing David couldn't live without, what mattered most to David and mattered more than anything else was keeping his relationship with God intact. So look at the defining difference between these two men. I think it's your last blanks. When you boil Saul's life down to one thing, write it in. Here's Saul. Lord, I don't care what else happens to me. Don't let me lose face. I don't care what else happens to me. Don't let me lose face. But when you boil David's life down to one thing, look at David's. Lord, I don't care what else happens to me, but don't let me lose you. David's heart cry in Psalm 51 was this. Take my life, take my possessions, take my kingdom, take my child, take my position, but Lord, whatever you do, don't let me lose you. You see, at the very core, David's life was consumed by one thing, a desire to really know God. Pastor Stewart, come on up. So as we close, I want us to look at the application again. If you've been taking the notes, even if you haven't, look back up to the application. And now write it in if you didn't before. I will never really know God unless truly knowing him becomes my relentless pursuit and my greatest desire. And now let me ask the question. It's on the screen. It's the question that I asked about Saul and David. When you boil your life down to one thing, how do you fill in the blank? Lord, I don't care what else happens to me but don't let me lose fill in the blank. How do you fill it in? I mean, in the depths of your heart, being brutally honest, not the churchy, I know about God, and I know orthodox theology. I mean, what is it that you, the one thing you can't live without? One thing. Have you become satisfied with anything besides knowing God himself? Or can you say with David that your soul thirsts, thirsts for the living God? Do you long for him? Is knowing him the only thing that really quenches your thirst? Are you as desperate for him as you are for the air? Have you identified the counterfeits in your life? Have you learned to pursue him alone? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you so desperate for his presence that you will die without him? Stand with me. In a moment, I'm going to open the altars. Perhaps there are some here this morning who've come to church, and maybe you've come to church recently or for a really long time, but this morning you realize that you've just been going through the motions or trying to impress someone or you're here to keep a parent or a spouse or a friend or your family happy. 
Maybe you thought you knew him. And maybe you think yourself a pretty good person. And um, maybe you're even, you've made some improvements in your life. Perhaps you even responded to an altar call or raised your hand when a pastor asked you if you wanted to follow Christ. But this morning, you've realized that there are a lot of other desires that are trying to crowd Jesus out of your life. And maybe this morning you realize you don't really know Jesus like we just read, like that. Take everything from me, God. Take it all, but don't let me lose you. Do you know him like that? Does everything else pale in significance to him? Or maybe you've known God a really long time and maybe you have completely orthodox theology and maybe you believe pure historic doctrines and maybe you know a lot of scripture. But this morning the Holy Spirit has given you a desire to go beyond the facts and sound doctrine. Maybe God's word has made you thirsty for the real thing. Perhaps you're hungry for more of his presence in your life. Or maybe this morning you've been convicted by the testimony of the apostles. Remember, they set aside their fears and set aside the commands of the authorities and they ignored the spirit of the age that said, you're not supposed to speak that name. And they said, you be the judge of whatever you want, but we will not stop speaking the name. This morning... If you want to make Jesus newly known in your life, and if you want to be bold and completely his, and if you want him to become your one thing, if you want him to be the one that you say, I don't care what else happens to me, but don't let me lose Jesus. If that's your heart cry this morning, then come as we see.